This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or a homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey there, beer nets. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the recently released, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-well-reviewed book, Homebrew All-Stars. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beers and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and figuring out a way to check it out. There you go. All right. On today's episode, we're going to tackle ourselves and get our beery knowledge on. We're going to start in the pub, uh, discuss the beer life, and then it's off to the library to discuss the causes and cures of DMS. A little about what we're brewing over there in the brewery. Uh, then we're going to go and tackle some of Denny's favorite myths before we head off to Milwaukee to talk with the relatively unknown, unless you live in Milwaukee, uh, all-star Mino Choi. Before we move on with things, though, we want to remind you that you can support the podcast in a number of ways. If you go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, you can click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association, or you can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine. When you do that, we get a little bit of money that helps support the podcast and the experiments that we do. But the really cool thing is if you click on the Patreon link, 
you can support our charity of choice. The charity for the second half of this year uh, comes from the suggestion of our Igor Robert Alloway, and it is the Children's Tumor Foundation. The foundation supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. I can't believe I said that right the first time. It's a, a great organization, a great cause, and so please uh, join us in supporting them. Click on the Patreon link and donate whatever you can. Yeah, uh, remember, you know, for the first half of the year, we had our cause for the Freedom Service Dogs of America, and thanks to our listeners, we donated almost five hundred dollars. So let's see if we can't uh, beat that record for this uh, half of the year. And uh, donate a little bit more to the kids. Yeah, and I should mention, too, that I got a real nice phone call from the people at Freedom Service Dogs. And they are just highly appreciative of everything that you guys did. So uh, thanks a bunch, and keep it up, and let's help the Children's Tumor Foundation out this time. So, instead of uh, listener mail this time around, we have something uh, a little bit different. Olin Suddeth, who many of you know from Reddit and other places as Homebrew Dad, has a homebrew competition that he's running called the Brew United Challenge. Uh, I uh, spent some time yesterday uh, talking to Olin on the phone to talk about the Brew United Challenge, what it is, and how you can enter, and the uh, amazing prizes that they have. So uh, let's take a minute and check that out. Hey everybody, this is Denny, and today we are talking to Olin Suddeth, uh, homebrew dad, about the Brew United competition. How are you today, Olin? Hey, Denny, doing great. Thanks for having me. Hey, man, it is a real pleasure. <laughs> it's a, I should say pleasure. I guess it's a little too early here, and I can't talk yet. Oh, um, well, yeah. Before we get started on this, tell me uh, a little bit about uh, how long you've been brewing and, uh, and what you like to brew. Okay, well, uh, I'm closing in on about five years brewing now. Um, as far as what I like to brew, a um, little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I do really like uh, a lot of English and, and Belgian styles. Um, so, uh, lately I'll admit the hot bug has really bitten me hard in the last year, uh, year or so. And so probably every other batch that I brew is, is an IPA or something with a ridiculous amount of hops in it. So, uh, <laughs> That's kind of what I'm into lately. Uh, i got a rock and beer coming up that uh, I'm trying to make a ridiculous banana bomb out of, uh, just for the fun of it. So we'll see what happens there. Wow, man, that's great. Yeah, we go through a lot of IPAs here, too. My wife pretty much refuses to drink anything under 70 IBUs. So uh, There you go. Yeah, there you go. About every other batch is an IPA, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, what, what made you decide to start the Brew United Challenge? Uh, well, let's see, uh, here, I don't know, I guess when I really first started brewing, uh, I opened up a little website, uh, uh, that was, uh, going to be my, my personal blog, uh, homebrewdad.com. And, uh, along the way, I, I would document the ridiculous, uh, failures and challenges and the silly things that I ran into, uh, as I brewed. Uh, and then I started getting into writing little utilities and tools, priming sugar calculators, yeast starter calculators, this kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, the idea started to come along to, uh, rather than just have it be my site, that uh, we would uh, look at doing like a community, kind of, kind of an open thing, start 
prompting other people to share some of their own thoughts and their own processes and their own experiences. And so Brew United was born. Uh, and then last year, that's when we really kicked things off. And to kind of celebrate that, we thought we'd come up with the idea of, uh, of doing this competition. Um, and instead of it being just uh, a run-of-the-mill, okay, send in your beer and we'll do whatever, uh, we wanted to make it a little different. So we started putting together ideas about ingredient restrictions and certain styles and, and certain things that you had to do to, you know, hence the name challenge to make it a challenge. Right. And so that, that's kind of where we were. So uh, this year's uh, competition is coming up here pretty soon, right? And the en- entry deadline is approaching quickly? Yep. Uh, the entry deadline would be September 15th, though, uh, quite honestly, I don't think we will make it through uh, to the end. We do have a hard entry cap. Um, last year, we capped it at 300 beers, and we filled that up in less than a month. This year, we grew the cap out to 500 beers, and we're, we're coming in on that pretty soon. So, wow. you know, that's, that's where we are. That is remarkable, man. Uh, congratulations on the success, although I know that can, be kind, of, it can be kind of a pain in the butt, too, I know, from running my own competitions. A, a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of cool because I get to wear the organizer hat, and that means that at this point, uh, you know, I make a lot of posts and announcements when we talk about it and, and whatever, and I've got, the way we do it, we have um, site directors, uh, head judges, that handle up the judging in each of the four cities that uh, are doing our preliminary rounds. Right. So really, really, I get to do a lot of fun, whereas they have the hard stuff. Um, <laughs> Smart you know, move, man. I make sure, yeah, I mean, I make sure the site works. I make sure people can print out their labels and all that kind of stuff. But they have to physically unbox the beer and take care of it and organize it and judge it. Um, basically, uh, I get to sample the very best beers when the best of shows done in Birmingham, when it's all said and done. Uh, the real hard work for me doesn't start until after everything is done, and then I get to start boxing up all those prizes and ship them out. Right, right. So uh, talk to us about some of the prizes you've got this year. Well, um, we've got, uh, once again, um, uh, SS Brewtech has come through with a, a seven-gallon Chronicle, uh, which is a basically a $400 stainless fermenter, which is a huge deal. Uh, Homebrew Supply is giving us a, a loaded-out uh, spike brewing 10-gallon kettle uh, with all the bells and whistles on it. Uh, those are those are our big grand prize items, but all told, we're now above $7,500 in prizes. Um, everything from gift certificate to just about every major homebrew retailer that you can think of, um, all kinds of, uh, of prizes that have, like, uh, we've got cleaning chemicals, we've got sanitizers, we've got tap handles galore, we've got uh, hops, we've got uh, drinking horns, we've got just about anything you can think of. Um, we're going to put together just some absolutely ridiculous prize packages. And then on top of that, we'll also do some some extra draws, um, some consolation prizes like we give the person who scores the highest without winning a medal, we'll give them something nice, and uh, and so on and so forth. And, and I, one of the other cool... Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, and I, I think you've uh, also got uh, some books by a couple uh, goofball yeah, authors. These, these kind of cool guys that have, uh, have now for the second year in a row stepped up... Uh, 
Uh, uh, uh, uh, uh, uh, uh, Donald yeah, and no, Dickhead. Right. Oh, no, come on. I wouldn't do like that. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, Dean and Drew, you guys, last year hooked us up with autographed copies of uh, Experimental Homebrewing. And this year you're doing uh, the uh, Homebrew All-Stars for us, which uh, uh, those were popular items last year. Um, and it's kind of a cool thing. You know, maybe it's one of those things that kind of harkens back to being a kid, but there's your authors, and then they've written something in there in the book specifically for you, and that's just pretty cool. So, Well, man, uh, we're, 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 we're extremely happy to be able to help out. You're doing a great thing there. So, uh, so before we wrap up here, tell us, you have specific categories, right? Tell people what the categories we are. We do. Um, we have four major divisions. Um, we have an American Beers Division, uh, a Commonwealth Beers Division, and uh, a Continental Beers Division. Um, and then we have a smaller, what we call it for fun category, which is the Smash Beers. Now, as of today, Smash Beers are completely full. We're actually taking waitlist entries on that. But now the others, each of the, the other three major divisions have six uh, BJCP-style categories, um, Irish Red Ale, American IPA, all sorts of things there, but there are six specific categories and uh, for each, and they all have, as we mentioned before, some ingredient restrictions that you have to uh, adhere to. Um, nothing too crazy, but the idea is to kind of push you a little bit out of your comfort zone and, you know, again, with the name, kind of challenge you. Right, right. And uh, if people want to enter, how do they go about doing that? Uh, they should go to brewunited.com. Uh, and there are banners and links and such all over the place. Um, and uh, there's a, a sign-up form there. Uh, you simply register online, pay with PayPal, credit card, whatever floats your boat there, and you'll be all set. We've been talking to uh, Olin Suddeth, the homebrew dad, about the Brew United Challenge. Uh, you guys out there have some beers brewed that fit those categories. Go to the website, enter, get some fantastic prizes, including a, a book signed by uh, Drew and me that you can probably like resell for half of what uh, the shelf value is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have the book. And it's a pretty hefty book, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun to read. So, and it's got some great recipes and whatnot. In yeah, it, it so. does, man. People were really generous to share their recipes with us. So, all right, Olin, thank you so much for being with us, and best of luck on the Brew United Challenge, buddy. Danny, thank you so much for having me, man, and uh, have a great day. You too, man. Thanks. All right, so that was Olin Suddeth, the homebrew dad, talking about the Brew United Challenge, a great competition with some great prizes. Uh, if you have a beer that fits one of those categories, get it entered and get it entered quick. Uh, Drew has some info about another competition you might be interested in. Yeah, if you remember uh, many, many episodes back, we talked about the BrewTube community uh, after they lost one of their own. Uh, time for another one. Uh, but also in the BrewTube community, one of the big figures there is uh, SJ Poor. And SJ Poor has been putting on a, a homebrew challenge that is actually global. Uh, he has, uh, there are U.S. and Can Canadian competitions. There's U.K. and Europe, New Zealand, Australia, and everything kind of comes together for a big uh, global showdown. And so until August 27th, you can go to SJ Poor, that's S-J-P-O-R rrchallenge.org, and we'll include the link in the podcast, uh, and register, 
The challenge this year is a session beer with a maximum of 4.5% ABV, any style, that fits those guidelines. So, hey, you know us. We're big about session beers, so uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and give this one a shot? He's got some great prizes, and they're uh, they're really working hard to make this a, a really great thing. All righty. So there's info about a couple different competitions you can enter if you're in the competition mood. Collect some great swag and probably have a really good time, too. We're going to take a little break here, listen to a message from Brewcraft while we wander over to the pub and grab a beer. And then we'll be talking about some homebrew laws that seem a little bit strange to us. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Drew and I have wandered over to the pub, and we're sitting here with a couple beers. What you drinking today, Mr. Beecham? Well, I decided to kind of go a little old school, a little new school, so I'm going to have myself a Sierra Nevada Torpedo, because... Why the heck not? That was the one, that was the beer that shook everybody up when they went. Sierra Nevada just released an IPA. What happened? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I I gotta admit that one has never done a lot for me, but uh, you know it's just my personal taste. Uh, I know there's lots of people who like it, so if you like it, you should be drinking it. I'm sitting here today. It's a hundred degrees in Eugene, and I am drinking a Trumer Pills because uh, <laughs> on a day like this, that. Uh, Wonderful malt flavor with the uh, totally refreshing hop crispness is exactly what I need to uh, make it through yet another podcast. See, and that's what's amazing to me is that it's hotter there where you are than it is down here in L.A. So that's by like, that's weird by like fifteen degrees. Yeah, well, you know what? And we're supposed to be near a hundred degrees for the next week. Oh, fun! Well, so. can, can we do, before we get into the rest of the beer life? I, I want to talk about that Trimmer Pills thing because. I love to talk about that beer because that is a beer that is all obsessive. Yeah, and, exactly. And so, for listeners, if you've never if you've never known the story of Trumer, uh, Trumer is what they're Austrian. And, uh, yeah, I believe so. And so they're Austrian, and they decided they wanted to bring their beer into America. Now, unlike a lot of European breweries, who their decision was was okay, well, great, we want to bring our beer to America. Let's get a container, fill it with beers, let it sit on the dock and then on a boat and then on a train and whatever. And who knows how old it is by the time it gets to your shelf. Trumer is super, super, super obsessive about their beer quality and beer freshness to the point where they decided, you know what? No, we're going to buy a brewery in America and take it over and rebuild it to our specifications. So they took over the old, I think it was Pacific Plate, uh, Pacific Plate Brewing Company in Berkeley, California and rebuilt this brewery to be exactly like what their brewery is in Austria. And you know me, I'm not a huge Pilsner fan. Uh, and I think most of the time it's because the Pilsners I've had have either not been very well executed, or they're boring, or they're not fresh. 
and I got to go tour the Trumer Brewery just shortly after they opened. And that was one oh, of those, cool. yeah, it was one of those eye-opening moments because, wow, having that beer straight off the brewery taps was mind-blowing. <laughs> I, <it laughs> I was, can imagine. It, but the other thing that is, not only are these guys so obsessive about the fact that they, you know, went and built a separate brewery in a whole other country, and now we're starting to see American craft brewers do the same thing in Europe, but they have the craziest, nuttiest, dumbest, stupidest, I'm not sure it makes a difference, but they still do it anyway, uh, brewing process that they call endosperm mashing. Oh, yes. This is amazing. And so for everybody out there, if you, if you haven't heard this, the, we used, we usually think of the crush, you know, you go, you drop your grain in the mill, crush it, you get out the other side, you try and keep your barley husk relatively intact and crush up the, the barley. Well, these guys have decided that the barley husk can contribute too much stringency to the beer. And so they literally, after the mill process, separate the flour that they've milled from the barley kernels from the husk, save the husk off to the side, mash the the barley uh, barley kernels, you know, for the period of time they do, I believe they do a full decoction, another process that I think is nuts. They do, uh, they run it through the mash, and then they mix the hulls back in at the very end to provide for the lauder. Also, that they don't get the astringency on the husk. It's nuts. So, so if you guys want to try this at home, what we would recommend is you grab a pair of tweezers <laughs> after you crush your grain and uh, dig through and pull out all the husks, right? Yeah, I, I had somebody uh, ask me, or no, actually, uh, I'm going to take it back. Marshall, the philosopher, and I were talking uh-huh. about this one time because he and I were both fascinated by the process and we were trying to figure out, is there any practical way to do that at the homebrew level? And we were just like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And really, is there any reason to? I don't know. They think so. And they make an amazing beer. So, uh, you know, whatever. But uh, I don't think I'll be trying that anytime very soon. Yeah, there you are. There's your beer nerdism. nerdism. Yeah, right. Okay. So now we're going to move on and we're going to talk about a couple different homebrew laws. Uh, one that doesn't seem so great and the other one that seems a whole heck of a lot better. So fill us in there, Drew. All right. Well, so, you know, a couple of years ago, we crossed that big uh, threshold, that big milestone. Homebrewing is legal in all 50 U.S. states. Woo! Right? At uh, which point in time you'd think that we'd be able to relax and not have to worry about anything dealing with the law anymore. Well, turns out that thanks to the craft beer broom boom and a bunch of other things, suddenly a lot of states' ABCs have started to pay attention to the rules that they have on the books. Uh, I know, Denny, you went through this in Oregon. Uh, oh, yeah. And sometimes here's the problem. Depending upon the people who are running your ABC or alcohol, liquor enforcement, whatever they call it in your state, Depending upon what sort of agent you have, you can get radically different interpretations of the laws that exist on the books. And the problem is that these organizations have a lot of power and no real need to change their interpretations just because you go, dude, that's unfair. So we know that, for instance, right now in North Carolina, uh, the North Carolina Ale, uh, which is, I guess, their APC, is interpreting the state law that... uh, that says basically private use to only mean that you can only have it in your home. Uh, so they're trying to take out homebrew club meetings, pouring out homebrew festivals. Uh, recently, the I think the Blue Ridge Brew Off, uh, which is a big competition there in North Carolina, 
is under threat of uh, legal action and felony arrest if they try and hold a beer competition. Uh, even though they're like, well, but everybody's invited. It's not. It's not a public event. You know, and they're like, no, you're inviting judges, and that makes it public. So, uh, and, wow. Yeah. So uh, apparently, the uh, uh, North Carolina ABC or whoever has come back and issued a response that says it is included in the opinion of the, or sorry, it is the opinion of the legal division that homebrew competitions are not legal in North Carolina. So, wow. This is a this is a big thing. So what do, what do we do about this? Now, Denny, you can you can talk about your experiences. Yeah, basically, we had the fortunate position of uh, having the legislature on our side uh, after it was pointed out that our homebrew laws here in Oregon didn't really allow for the the same kinds of things that they're trying to ban in North Carolina. So we did have to go through one summer with. Uh, you know, homebrew competition at the state fair, a lot of the smaller uh, individual competitions uh, decided to just be prudent and uh, take a year off for it. But the cool thing is that uh, we had the state legislature on our side in order to get a change. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the bill was initiated by my uh, state representative, who just happens to also be a homebrewer. And... Uh, we sailed through without a single no vote, either in committee or on the floor, once the bill uh, came up for a vote. So hopefully uh, in North Carolina, they can find some sympathetic legislators to help get this dealt with. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. is, It seems, for the most part, there's this real conflict, right? You know, the, It seems like some of the people who are involved in various uh, alcohol beverage commission uh, groups the agents have a real strong and stern sense of duty, right? And so to them, they look very, very suspiciously on homebrewers as if they were about a half a step ahead of being a moonshiner. And that's truthfully because sometimes, you know, like here in California, I know one of the problems has been that for the most part, the ABC doesn't mess with homebrewers because they don't usually have to interact with homebrewers. But there's been a rash of things where people trying to open up breweries have gone and done things like pretended to be commercial breweries at commercial beer festivals. And, you know, the ABC takes a very, very dim view of that. And since that's the majority yeah. of the time that they're running into homebrewers, they tend to have a very bad opinion of homebrewers. So, wow. but once you get into the legislature side, if you find yourself a sympathetic legislator to uh, help you introduce a bill, uh, for the most part, it seems like things don't get fought over that much unless you're in Alabama. Uh, <laughs> and I'll give you a perfect example of that uh, here in California. Uh, we've been going through a couple of radical swings the past couple of years in terms of homebrewing rights. Uh, and one of them was that basically the ABC came out and said, uh, according to California law, a licensed establishment, a brewery, a brew pub, a bar, whatever, any place that's legally entitled to sell alcohol is only by law allowed to have on premise alcohol that they are allowed to sell. So since they can't sell homebrew, homebrew is not allowed in a licensed establishment. And, you know, the ABC did their usual saber rattling and, you know, threats of people losing licenses and everything else. Now, of course, this is a huge problem because uh, I think something like three quarters of the clubs meet in a bar or a brewery. Yes, yeah, so, uh, the people behind most of these ABC positions take themselves, take their job very seriously. 
uh, uh, to the point where it naturally leads into conflict. Now, fortunately, here in California, we also have a legislator that uh, legislature that is perfectly willing to help us tackle that sort of thing. And so right now we have uh, floating through the state Senate and the state assembly uh, bill AB 2172, which is decided is an amending the alcohol code to effectively allow uh, homebrew beer into licensed establishments for the purposes of a homebrew club meeting, uh, homebrew competition, et cetera, et cetera. And there are usual sorts of restrictions because the ABC wants to keep people from being confused about the provenance of homebrew and prevent bars from being able to sneak homebrew in to try and sell cheap beer and this, that, and the other. So, like I said, they tend to look at the the world of anything alcohol related with a very, very jaundiced eye, usually for good reason, because a lot of people try and get away with murder. I would say that, uh, you know, uh, based on some of the scenarios you've described, some homebrewers have brought this down on the rest of the community, too. Uh, So, you guys, be honest out there. Do the right thing, you know? Well, and I do want to point out that, you know, this is sailing through uh, the legislature right now. You know, it's going back and forth. It's getting amended in the various bodies and then has to go back for reconciliation and all that silliness. You know, Robert's Rules of Orders and full-fledged motion of government. Uh, and fortunately, it's not really going to run into any problems. I don't think there's been a single no vote on the entire thing through whatever it's on through now, like six different, oh, that's great. Six different votes. Uh, and I yeah. doubt there will be, and uh, hopefully pretty soon it will be on Governor Moonbeam's desk, and it will become law. And, uh, yeah, but I do want to point out that this stuff is still going on. We are seeing a lot of increase in uh, right-to-use type fights now around homebrewing. You know, what can you do with homebrewing? And various groups waking up and going, wait, you guys are doing what? No, you, I don't care if you've been doing that for 20 years. You're not allowed to do that by law. Uh so part of the reason to bring this up is remember that if the if you run into these situations it's okay you can figure out how to fight it you can figure out how to move it through the legislature and very importantly one of our sponsors and of course uh the group that day and i both serve on uh the ha has an entire group of people who are experienced at what it means to go in front of the state and get the laws changed so by all means reach out to the ha and they'll help you with your fight too that's right. Yeah, they uh, they can't initiate a change uh, in your state. That's really not what they do. But if you have a group there that is working on it, or if you want to work on it, they will certainly be there to help you out. So keep that in mind. All all righty now. It's time to uh, grab our beers, wander out of here over to the library, and we're going to talk about uh, a great article from Scott Janish, who we've uh, spoken of before, about what causes DMS and how to avoid it. We'll be right back. Hey, we're back. We've wandered over into the library. We're sitting in our comfy chairs with our beers. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, an article that uh, Drew found online by Scott Janish about DMS. Give us the rundown, buddy. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say I really, really like the smoking jacket that we have in the library. It's very comfortable. (laughs) Yeah, well, you're smoking something different than I am. (laughs) Well, uh, maybe come November, that might be legal here in California. (laughs) All right. All right. 
So I just wanted to uh, talk real quick. Uh, Scott Janish has been really killing it recently, I think, uh, on his website, scottjanish.com, uh, with a bunch of articles. And this uh, one that he had up, uh, I think about a month ago now uh, that we're talking about it, is all about DMS. And it's a rundown of what DMS is, what the causes are, and really, you know, what you can do to deal with it or if you have to deal with it at all. And so I'll give you guys the real basic. If you don't know, DMS is a flavor compound, uh, a sulfur because, you know, DMS dimethyl sulfide or sulfide. Uh, and it really, the primary thing that you will get out of it, depending upon who you are and how you interpret it, is a cooked vegetable flavor. A lot of people will say things like creamed corn. If you've ever picked up a rolling rock and popped one of those bad boys open and give it a good whiff, you've gotten that creamed corn character. It's not light strike. It's DMS, and it is basically a compound in malt called uh, SMM or S-methylmethonine. Uh, <laughs> You're on your own there, man. I'm not yeah. touching that one. Damn chemical names. Uh, uh, but uh, it's basically it's in all the barley that we have. Uh, it's notoriously supposed to be really high in Pilsner malts. And so the paler your beers are, the more they're made with Pilsner malt. Supposedly, the idea is the more susceptible they are to DMS. So the traditional cure for uh, DMS is to just skip over the whole problem completely and get rid of the SMM in the beer from the very beginning so it doesn't have a chance to transform into DMS. And the way that we do that is through that strong, vigorous boil that everybody tells you about. So, Danny, you want to walk through uh, what Scott also talked about about DMS? Yeah, I'm, and you know, I'm just going to like touch on a few of the high points here from his article and uh, let you guys go read it for yourself. But uh, he starts off by talking about how uh, it is extremely prevalent in commercial beers, probably more so than you would have thought. And one of the interesting things that he discovered from his research was that it's as prevalent in ales as it is in lagers. And uh, that's generally not the way it's thought of uh, because of the lighter malt in lagers. Um, uh, like Drew said, a lot of it can be boiled off. Um, and uh, the, the temperature is important, but so is the actual vigor of the boil. And this has been pointed out several different places that uh, a, a vigorous boil uh, where you have a real rolling boil as opposed to just a simmer and a little bubble uh, is a good way to uh, try and, uh, and get the DMS eliminated from your, um, your beer. Uh, whirlpool hop stands can be a real cause of DMS. Uh, and, uh, if, especially if you are using a short boil already and, uh, put that together with an extended hop stand, you can be at risk of higher than normal levels of DMS, depending on the amount of SMM that survived the boil. This next one I thought was extremely interesting is that, uh, Foaming during the boil seems to reduce the amount of DMS in your beer. One of the thoughts uh, is that the DMS might actually be concentrated in the foam, and then it's stripped out by the rising uh, vapor of the boil. But uh, they also point out that using anti-foaming ingredients uh tends to produce beers with a higher level of DMS because the foam hasn't been formed. 
So, uh, you know, that's another reason I'm glad I stopped using that stuff. Uh, open fermentation seems to be a good way to make sure that your beer is not going to have an elevated level of DMS. Uh, you know, we talked about that in relation to Saison, and it appears that, uh, that it can be a good thing for DMS also. Uh, and then uh, fermentation temperature has uh, a, uh, a, an impact on it. Uh, Worts of high gravity create substantially more DMS than lower gravity worts. And then uh, yeast health can, can also be an issue for DMS. Uh, and I won't get into the chemistry of that, but uh, just remember that uh, use healthy yeast. And uh, they also found, and I thought that this was interesting too, that uh, agitated yeast, like uh, using a stir bar to make a starter, had 25% more DMS in the finished beer, which was likely caused by uh, yeast damaged by the stir bar. Uh, again, I have given up my stir plate and gone to the shaken, not stirred, one-quart starter. So uh, I guess I inadvertently found another way to reduce DMS in my beers. And finally, DMS can also be introduced through hops. So during the course of a boil, uh, most of the uh, sulfur volatiles have been evaporated. But when you do uh, late hopping and whirlpool ad uh, additions, uh, sulfides peak, and those can be detectable in the wort. Uh, some of the DMS will be reduced during fermentation via CO2, but some could uh, survive and stay in the beer. And finally... Higher pH levels resulted in more DMS. So uh, there's a good reason to always watch your pH and be aware that if you're going for a beer that requires a higher pH, you may need to keep an eye out for methods to uh, reduce uh, your possible DMS. There. Was that long and boring enough for you? <laughs> well, and I think the important part is to draw people's attention to that Scott is actually, a lot of what he's doing is, you know, very aggressive uh, literature diving. And he's actually really digging into the commercial research that's out there. And, you know, to me, I always wonder if part of the reason, so he, he did an experiment uh, where he brewed a New England IPA uh, and, actually showed a fair amount of uh, measurable uh, DMS in the New England IPA uh, from his his little brew. But uh, then we have the experiments that are out there, hanging out there from the Brewlosophy guys, where, you know, the, I think uh, Malcolm has been frustrated by the the idea that he can't seem to bring up detectable DMS levels in any of the beers that he's doing, no matter what he's doing to them. Uh, <laughs> And I don't know exactly what malts he's been using to do that, too, because obviously it's going to be uh, somewhat maltster-dependent, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and it's going to be maltster-dependent. I think Malcolm's been focusing on German uh, German Pilsner malts, which are supposedly notorious. Yeah, um, right. And so they've been doing everything to try and drive as much DMS in here. But, you know, Scott's results from his uh, measurements and tests showed actually significant amounts of DMS in the beer. And I think, if I remember correctly, he was talking about... Uh, that the uh, the hop character he felt like might have been affected by it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I think that hops have an effect on DMS, and DMS has an effect on the hops. It's a kind of a a, a, a circular kind of crap game. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, 
Well, regardless, I, I, what I think uh, people really should do is go uh, go read uh, Scott's article. I, I really I highly recommend it and highly recommend a lot of the stuff that he's writing because he is bringing in a lot of the commercial research. Uh, and it's nice to see it because, uh, well, you know, it's just good to see what happens when uh, the big boys are playing with actual science. Yep, that's right. So uh, we'll put a link to this article on the website uh, once the podcast comes up so you can go check it out for yourself. Uh, rather than listening to me kind of trying to hit some points, you can sit down with a beer, read through it, and uh, see what you think. So I guess it's time to head over to the brewery now, huh? Yeah, let's do it. All righty. We're going we're gonna to walk over to the brewery. We're going to check out some gear and tell you what we've been playing with. We'll be right back. Hey, we're here in the brewery, and uh, we're going to talk about what we've been up to lately. I have been lucky enough to uh, acquire one of the few Pico machines out there from Pico Brew. And, you know, Drew, this is probably like a good place to talk about our pledge once again. It's been a while since we talked about that. We're going to talk about a lot of gear on this show and a lot of ingredients, and some of it we're going to like and some of it we may not like. And some of it may come from people who sponsor the show. We need to let you know that the fact that we have a sponsor who provides us with uh, equipment or ingredients to test has no bearing on our results and our feelings about that gear or ingredient. We're going to always tell you guys the truth, and we're going to tell you exactly what we think because that's what we're here for, right? Indeed. I mean, I... I've always taken as a role model on this sort of stuff, Chuck Yeager, you know, the, you know, the great uh, pilot who for years has always had a policy that he will not endorse a product that he uh, does not believe in and use himself. And so, yeah, if you hear me talking positive about something, it's not because somebody gave it to me for free. It's because I actually think it's pretty rad. That's right. That's right. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about the Pico here. The Pico is a small unit, about the size of a large coffee maker or half uh, half a microwave, maybe. It has been called by some people the Keurig of beer making. And while I don't really care a lot for that name, I guess there are similarities. Basically, uh, the unit comes with a, a great package of accessories, one of which is a uh, like a gallon and three-quarter keg. And you hook that up to the Pico through your regular keg disconnects. You put in uh, what they call Pico packs, which are uh, pods that contain grains and hops. Uh, and the cool thing is that the packs are made of coconut fiber. So when you're done brewing, you can just take them out, toss them in your compost, and they will break down completely. Uh, but then basically you, uh, you push a button to start the process and, uh, the Pico reads a barcode off the Pico pack and knows the mash schedule and everything else. And in about two and a half hours, you have in the keg, uh, about uh, enough work to be the equivalent of about 14 bottles of beer. You chill it down, pitch the yeast, ferment it. You use the pump that is inside the Pico. This is the really cool part to transfer the beer to a mini keg and to the mini keg, you attach one of the coolest little CO2 regulators I've ever seen. Screw on a CO2 cartridge and carbonate the beer. 
Uh, I have done two batches so far, uh, one of which is kegged and drinkable at this point. It's a version of uh, Deschutes' fresh-squeezed IPA. It's called Half Squeezed. And I got to tell you, this beer is fantastic. Uh, You know, uh, people say, well, you know, how good can it be for something like that? Well, I have never actually had a real Deschutes fresh-squeezed, but the Pico version of it is so good, I have to go out and get some fresh-squeezed to see if it measures up to what I made in the Pico. Now, a lot of you are going to say, oh, that's not really brewing. And, you know, yeah, I, I admit it's more like beer making than brewing. The The real brewer's art comes in the fermentation and the, the handling of the wort and stuff like that. You're not making recipes and doing stuff. Admittedly, this isn't for everybody. Uh, some home brewers are going to see it as a real travesty and not want to get anywhere close to it. For other people who uh, don't have as much time, who don't want to make as big a commitment, it's a great way to make a really good beer from a recipe from one of your favorite breweries and and have it around and have nice fresh beer there to drink. So uh, I believe that they're going to be starting to ship these things pretty soon. They've been working on fulfilling all the Kickstarter orders. They sell for around seven dollars $800. Uh, and if you're interested, uh, if you just email info at picobrew.com, they can tell you a lot more about it, or you can go to their website and check it out. My own feeling is I love this little thing a lot more than I thought that I was going to. It's really fun and cool to use, and the beer that it makes is fantastic. So uh, if it sounds like something that could be of use to you, uh, I would highly recommend that you look into it. And if it doesn't sound like something that's your style of brewing, that's fine. There's lots of other options out there, huh? Yeah, I mean, after all, not everybody's brewing needs are the same, and not everybody gets the same jollies from the same part of the brewing process. So That's right. I, I, I do have one curious question, since I don't have my hands on a Pico, you lucky dog. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the talk has been around these Pico packs that come sort of prepackaged with the recipes uh, sort of programmed into the machine, right? You know, so it finds out what pack you're putting in. Let's say I don't want to buy somebody's pack. I assume there's a way that I can make my own recipe. You can you can uh, make your own recipe and have it made into Pico packs. Uh, generally, that is done using an adapter for the Zymatic, their larger system, uh, mm-hmm. so that you can you can kind of like uh, like prototype a Pico pack recipe for it. Uh, I don't know the exact process, but yeah, I think that there are ways you can get your own recipes made up. Uh, I was informed uh, earlier this week that uh, one of the first recipe kits to come out for it is going to be my rye IPA. So uh, hopefully next week I'm going to have a few of those packs to play with, and we'll start seeing how that compares to uh, to the version that comes out of my 19-year-old cooler. Very nice. Yeah, yeah, it could be cool. So what have you been brewing, buddy? Well, you know, so you interviewed me a couple of weeks back for Brew with a Falcon. Uh, and I just wanted to update people on one of the fun, stupid ideas I had. Uh, Juno Choi from BSG and, uh, you know, related to our unknown all-star who's about to come up here shortly, uh, got me some extract. And you heard that talked about during the segment where uh, everybody had a little bit of extract to play with. And I decided to play with doing a kettle sour. 
and I had my hands on some Pilsner uh, malt extract and some rye malt extract, and I made a Berliner Rogan something or other. And, you know, just mixed up uh, leftover HLT water while it was nice and hot, uh, added the extracts, stirred everything together, pitched in a, a bug culture, and then let that sit for four days at nice hot LA garage summer temperatures, and then boiled it and cooled it and pitched it with the USO5. It's been sitting in the uh, the fermentation chamber for a little while, and I just put it into the kegs. And I have to say, for the amount of work that I put into this beer, it has no right being as awesome as it is. Right on. I love hearing that. So, uh, when you guys hear about this uh, dumb idea of mine, um, rest assured, it worked. It worked like a charm, and I guarantee you I will be doing it again because, after all, I do end up with a lot of leftover HLT water at the end of a brew day. Yeah, because I have it around for various things like cleaning. So why not do something with it? Yeah, man. Really, water is precious down there, right? <laughs> yeah, we're we're coming for <laughs> we're, we're coming for yours, even if you are at a hundred degrees. Yeah, right. I know, man. That's what I'm afraid of. So. All righty, we're going to uh, head out from the brewery and walk over to the lab and uh, talk about some homebrew myths and listen to an interview with our unknown all star Mino Choi. We'll be right back. All right, hey, boys and girls, welcome back to the show. Uh, we are sitting here in the lab at Casa Verde's Estates. The Jacob's Ladder is humming in the background. It's time to get down to some myth science, some busting of myths, something that we're trying to avoid trademarks because otherwise somebody's lawyers might come talk to us. But Mr. Khan, Mr. Khan, did you, yes, sir. did you or did you not just release an article on the world talking about your six favorite homebrew myths and why they must die? Uh, I did, actually. Uh, the AHA came to me and asked me to write an article about homebrew myths. It's uh, now on their website. Uh, you can go to uh, homebrewersassociation.org and find a link there right on the homepage. I, I quickly whipped off about six right off the top of my head that I could uh, think of that I've I've dealt with. Uh, I know that there's a lot more out there. I know that everybody's got their favorite myths, but uh, these are mine. So basically what we covered was uh, was sparge temperature, uh, number one, being that uh, water that's hotter than 170 degrees will not ruin your beer and cause astringency if your pH is in line. We also covered the other direction, uh, what happens if your sparge water is under 170 degrees. And contrary to uh, what most people think, it really has no effect on your efficiency or beer quality. And the, the math is in the article, so you can see it. Uh, we covered hot side aeration. There, I said it. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, and we kind of looked at both sides of that. We looked at the myth of olive oil, which we had covered here in an experiment. And uh, for people who think that uh, maybe using olive oil will substitute for aeration, hint, it doesn't. Uh, we looked at uh, fly sparging versus batch sparging efficiency, because that's something else that uh, is overlooked by a lot of people. 
And we looked at fermentation temperature, how that maybe the uh, temperatures that are often listed for yeasts are higher than uh, you might want to actually ferment at. And finally, we looked at the liquid versus dry yeast thing. Uh, I think that a lot of people now have learned that uh, dry yeast can be really good and effective, but there are still people clinging to the old saw that uh, dry yeast is always going to suck and liquid is always going to be better. Uh, admittedly, there are fewer uh, variations in dry yeast, so you might have a little bit of a hard time finding one for a particular style of beer. But hey, if there's a dry yeast that fits what you're making, go for it, man. There's some good ones out there. Well, so now I have to naturally ask the follow-up question. So you gave out six, and yeah. the internet and brewers being what they are, uh, I'm sure you got feedback. Oh, yeah. Uh, generally, generally though, it was, uh, it was pretty positive feedback. Uh, people would point out things that maybe I hadn't thought about or missed. Uh, one of the most common comments that I got, I guess, was that olive oil aeration I mean, either people said that they had either not heard of that or they had thought that it had been seriously debunked already. So, uh, well, and I know maybe, that, uh, according to, according to a couple of our listeners who are over in Europe, that apparently that's still a big thing over there in Europe and trying to convince people that it's not a thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, and, uh, there are, there are even people here in the U S who should know better and I'm not going to name any names, uh, but they, they believe that it's still a viable uh, thing to use in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. So Those jerks. Well, any, yeah. any, any other responses that, uh, from people uh, pointing out things that you either missed or that you sh they felt you should have talked to that you might get to in part two? Uh, the people wanted to know about the secondary, of course. You know, that's always one of those things that, uh, you know, that, that comes up. Do you really need to use a secondary or not? Uh, Ray found part of the Burlosophy crew pointed out that he had done a batch sparge versus fly sparge experiment and uh, used a, a mash tun with a false bottom and found a very, very slight increase in efficiency due to fly sparging, although I tend to think that, uh, that that increase was so small that the experiment would have to be repeated a number of times to make sure it wasn't like within the margin of error of measurement. Um, also, you know, what Ray was using was a mash tun that was optimized, you know, with a false bottom, which is obviously going to work better for fly sparging. My guess is that if you took a typical batch sparge mash tun, which uses a single straight line laddering system, that uh, the results would be the other way, that uh, the uh, batch sparging efficiency would come out better. So, um, you know, that, so that, yeah, there are a lot of, there were questions, there were comments, there are more things we can cover. Uh, we'll see if we can come up with, uh, with another article to cover the rest of those things one of these days. Well, there you go. And it also sounds like we have some material to keep testing on to make sure that people believe what you're actually saying is a myth is a myth. Yeah, that's right. Well, and we did have one response here from, uh, John Poston, uh, on the AHA side, he says, are you saying that doing the chicken dance around my boil is not changing the outcome of my beer? Mashing in naked does reduce dough balls, though, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, if, if that's what you want to believe, then 
You just go right ahead. No, 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 just don't send me any pictures. Yeah, I was going to say, knowing most homebrewers, I'm not exactly certain I want that image in my head. Yeah, can can you imagine see, seeing somebody doing a naked chicken dance around the boil kettle? No. Scary. I mean, I usually, uh, I usually do naked offerings of prayer and sense around my boil kettle, but... Uh, that's even scarier. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> uh, right. Well, hey, go, go find Denny's article over on the AHA uh, website. We'll put a link into it. Uh, and go read and tell us if you agree with the things that Denny are saying is myth are actually myths. If you don't think that they're myths, tell him why you think that he is full of it. Yeah, right. There's, there are so many reasons, huh? Yeah, I mean, and trust me, you don't have to limit yourself to just the, the myths that he's writing about. You can tell him that he's full of it for very many reasons. I tell him almost every day. Right. That's right. For, there are many, many reasons, so. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? Okay, we're back from our short musical interlude. We're back here in the lab, and we're going to talk about a trip that I took recently. Yeah, where exactly did you go, and who invited you, and wh- what? <laughs> I, uh, I took a trip to uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, at, at the uh, offer of our sponsor, Craftmeister, hung out with Jonathan Etley for a few days, and he took me around to meet some great people. I got to address a meeting of the Milwaukee Beer Barons, an amazing group of people, and I totally lost track of how many beers were on tap that night because there was people just kept shoving stuff at me, saying, try this, try this, try this. I was glad I wasn't driving. But uh, one of the things I got to do when I was there uh, was sit down with Mino Choi and talk about his uh, his brewing. Uh Mino uh, is the brother of Juno Choi, who some of you may know. Uh, Juno was at Northern Brewer, and he's at BSG now. Mino started brewing about five years ago. He makes beer, wine, mead, cider, uh, and this amazing Korean beverage called soju that he has actually started a company, and we'll be having that on the market soon. Wait, uh, uh, wait hold on. I want to back. Uh, I want to backtrack to that statement. Uh, I yes. I live here in L.A., which has you know arguably the largest Korean population outside of Korea, and right. lots of great Korean restaurants. A great big old Korean town. I would not use any sort of positive words about soju, at least in my experience, because it tends to go hand in hand with Korean barbecue, lots of beer, and even more soju in repeating yes. in repeating cycles. That. Yes, and that's that's kind of what we did. <laughs> um, but let me, I mean, I have never had it before, so I have nothing to compare it to, but it was astoundingly good. It was not the uh, rot gut that you may have had or may have been expecting. <laughs> it was smooth and delicious. And uh, yeah, after we, after we got done with the interview, Mino made an incredible Korean barbecue uh, for us, uh, bulgogi. Uh, we did lettuce wraps with sesame leaves right out of his garden. Uh, some of the most amazing kimchi that you could ever put into your mouth. Uh, and lots of soju to wash it all down as we went. So uh, it was it was a great afternoon. Now, before we get into the interview, I, I need to mention that Mino is, I believe, the only person I know who has ever scored a 50 in a homebrew competition, and he's done it more than once. Uh, this guy, 
I, I believe has taste buds far beyond mortal human beings. Uh, he comes from a, a restaurant family uh, and works in the restaurant himself. And based on uh, the beverages of his that I tried and the food of his that I tried, this guy knows what's what. So uh, with all that rambling intro out of the way, grab yourself a beer, sit back, and let's listen to the interview with Mino and some of his very interesting opinions on things. Hey there, beer fans. This is Denny, and I'm sitting here with Mino Choi in his gorgeous house. Uh, and we're going to talk about Mino's brewing because he brews everything and does it well. So, Mino, how are you today, man? I am doing very well. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your brewing. Well, I started home brewing probably about six and a half years ago. I was introduced to the art by my brother Juno Choi, who works for BSG. Um, Prior to that, he was working for Northern Brewer, and they were opening a store in West Dallas, Wisconsin. And as they were setting up the shop and they finally got the doors open, he was like, well, you should just come on down here and just try making something. You know, <laughs> At that time, I wasn't really into craft beer or wine, and uh, he just said, well, just, just come on down here and try it. So I'm like, all right, I'll go down there and try it. I ended up tasting uh, one of Kurt Stock's. Meads that he had made for the, the inaugural opening. Oh, man, those and, were amazing. Uh, yeah, pretty much it was like a sweet mead. And so I just took one sip, and the first thing that popped into my head, I just yelled out. I was like, orange zest vanilla bean, you know? And then I decided to make a orange zest vanilla bean mead and then enter, enter a contest. And wow. that was the first contest I ever entered. I got a perfect 50 out of 50 from Al Boyce. The first yeah. contest? First contest I ever entered, one entry, um, and then wow. uh, got a 50 out of 50 from Al, and then uh, that was pretty much it. That started started everything off. It's, it's amazing how a little validation like that can uh, really turn you into a monster. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I felt like right away looking at home brewing, I felt like there, there was two approaches to it. You could be very technically minded, but I'm a little more along the art side of it, right? more like cooking. It's kind of like balance and season. Like that's, that's what I'm going for, you know, just balance and season. You know, when everything's in balance, you right. have a pretty good tasting product. So, uh, so you brew, you make beer, wine, mead, mead and cider. And hard cider, yep. And, and other things and we want to any about. other experimental <laughs> beverages. Um, Do you have a preference between all of those? You know, like... I used to be really big into mead, but then I started making beer that, that I enjoyed to drink a lot mm -hmm. and wine and other things. Um, so it's not particularly any one thing. I think it's just creating it and then coming out with a good product. But like for me, I guess the main thing was just to uh, be able to share it with other people right? and other people's enjoyment Nowadays, I mean, it's the only satisfaction I get out of it. You know, people are like, oh, you must drink all the time. You have all this stuff. You know, like, I actually never drink anything I make unless I'm sharing it with somebody else. 
Wow. Because I already know it's awesome. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's that that's what it is. It's it's other people's enjoyment. You know, you, you prepare a large meal and there's no one to eat it with, you know, it's, it's just food, you know. Right. <laughs> it's just food, you know. Man, so that's, that's a that's a really great way to think of it, you know. Uh, so you weren't really into beer or anything before you had that experience in Northern Yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't into, uh, you know, I went to college and, you know, the, the beer of choice there was, was Bush Light. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what they were drinking was Bush Light and Wapatui and things like that. But, you know, craft beer wasn't really necessarily on my radar, you know. But then someone told me there's a beer for everyone, you know. That's right. And I did, I did find those beers, you know. So, like, that's... That's the main thing, you know, like there's definitely a beer from every, for everyone. What's your favorite beer? You know, I have what I consider like a, like a top five, you know, where it's mm-hmm. kind of like one from every category. But I think my, the beer I can drink the most of all season long is actually like this triple decocted Bavarian Hefeweiss. Wow. Yeah. Um, I learned it from a gentleman, the original recipe, um, this guy Ryan Clark who actually brought some beer to Northern Brewer. <laughs> and a lot of times when people would walk through the door to a homebrew shop and they're going to bring something, it's, tell me what's wrong with this beer. <laughs> or, you know, there's something up with this. Why don't you taste it? And, you know, I mean, it's some really disgusting stuff. You know, sometimes, you know, people are trying to figure out where they went wrong. But this guy brought in this beer, and as soon as I took one sip, I was like, that is the beer. Because when I was in Colorado once... My friend who had went to Denver, like, in the morning, we were there just uh, going to see some show at the Red Rocks, and he was drinking this beer out of this large wax top bottle, and it was just the weediest, creamiest, <laughs> most delicious thing ever. So as soon as I tasted that, it totally reminded me of this beer, and I was like, immediately I said, I'm going to pay for the ingredients for 10 gallons. You're going to keep five. I'm going to keep five. And then I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's basically it. That beer is phenomenal. I actually gave a, a slightly modified recipe on, on uh, Chop and Brew. So oh, yeah, there's yeah, recipes yeah, yeah. on there. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's just one of those things where the gentleman was was very into, I guess, the modern-day Reinheitsgebots, you know, <laughs> as much as you could do it for here. So there was no genetically modified grain. I mean, they were using the organic two-row, the Weyermann wheat from Germany, the Haller towel, but then he showed me these natural springs in the area. So we would go there and get the water, and it has a good mineral content, and, you know, I've talked to so many people. It just makes such a huge difference. Oh, yeah. You know, eventually, I used to go there and just harvest the water, my friend used to work for like a water delivery company, so I'd right. pay him six bucks and get those five gallon blue water, <laughs> you know, and just get like 90 gallons at a time. And, um, you know, I started, you know, every contest, you know, I would enter with that beer, I'd pretty much gold all the time, you know. <laughs> and then I started to cut corners and I started using tap water, and that's when I started losing. Remarkable. It's, uh, I started so- losing. And, you know, people are like, oh, well, the water here in Milwaukee is good for beer. And I'm like, the Germans settled here for the water that's coming out of the ground, not the water out of the water treatment facility, you know? <laughs> like, the tap water, maybe it was good back in, you know? But now with chloramine-bonded water and all these things they can't even remove out of the water nowadays, you know, it's, 
It's questionable, you know. Yeah, well, you know, and beer is 90% water, so if the water sucks, the beer is going to suck. Yeah, I mean, you know? for sure. That was uh, one of the things that always stuck with me. I, yeah, I, mean, I didn't start brewing until after I moved like out into the country and had a well, and the water from the well is just amazing. Nice. It's like nearly perfect water, you know. Um, and I've always attributed that to the fact that I've had such an easy time brewing at least decent beers, you know, unless I do something to screw them up. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the key, you know. I mean, when you're brewing, especially if you're somebody new getting into the brewing game, I mean, the, I guess the, the biggest tip I could ever give someone is when you start out, and whether you have the most extravagant system or you're just using plastic buckets in a pot, you know, the main thing I always try to stress to people is you got to develop your method. Mm -hmm. So when I'm at home versus when I'm bringing on a Sabco system or whatever, I follow these particular steps. I do this, 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 and this. And then it always gives me predictable results. You know, the main thing is, is people come into like a hobby, like home brewing. They want to try brewing this and that and this and that. You pick one recipe and you keep brewing it over and over and over again till you can get that consistency. That is exactly Then you thing. have, you know the skill set, and the confidence. So then whatever recipe, you just apply your method to it, and it's going to come out as good as it can be. You know, like good in, good out is my philosophy. I use top <laughs> quality ingredients, you know, and I try to eliminate as many variables as possible. That's why uh, I think I've been pretty successful at what I do. And, and by brewing that beer over and over again, it's amazing how much you can learn. Oh, yeah. So that when you, your first attempts end up coming out better after that because you can make more educated guesses about what to do. Exactly. I mean, it's the confidence thing, you know? I mean, when you're home alone and the pot's boiling and, <laughs> and things are going on and something, something goes wrong and, and you have to make that snap decision, you know, you want to be able to make the right decision. Right. A lot of times people panic and they're like, oh, I just did this, which was the wrong thing to do, you know? But once you get comfortable using your system, following your method, then... It doesn't matter what recipe you put into it, it's going to come out good. You know, like before I even think about trying to make something, I know it's going to be awesome. You know, <laughs> that, that confidence and, and uh, you know, positive energy yeah. into what I'm doing. You know, the thought that it's going to get messed up or infected, it never even crosses my mind. You know, like I've had two batches that, that were epic failures, and I can remember them both. One was a Russian Imperial peanut butter stout where I read online that in the secondary, they're like, add more peanut butter, and then it got an infection. Oh. And then I tried to make like a carrot cake mead, but uh, I mean, I ended up adding like carrot juice and, you know, malt and, and all these things, and I ended up using a champagne yeast, and the champagne yeast was like, no. Oh. <laughs> and then it just got sour, and then like the... I think the vegetable matter from the carrot juice was uh, <laughs> starting <laughs> yeah, to get real know, sulfury man. real quick. So that was, uh, after that, I was like, all right, I'm sticking to the tried and true stuff. So so what's your brewing system like? You know, like I'm just using the, the standard coolers, you know. I'm using the, the orange, you know, 10-gallon <laughs> coolers. Mm -hmm. um, I have a 15-gallon pot. I mean, I do have kegels that have been made. Um, you know, but I just feel like I have tighter control. If I want to go brew larger, I can always have access to a Sabco system or a guy who has 30-gallon pots with, mm -hmm. like, a rim system, you know, so I can 
I can do that. It's just that consuming the beer, you know, I don't like faded glory. You right. know, like when I let somebody try something of mine, like it needs to be <laughs> at its peak, you know, like things start to break down after a while. You know, I mean, there's a Goldilocks zone, I think, when especially like wheat beers or meads or other things like that, you know, they have that Goldilocks zone where it's at the pinnacle of its flavor and everything. Once that starts to deteriorate, I mean, to other people, that first taste, yeah, it's still going to be fantastic, but I know that it wasn't right. what it used to be. Right. And so, yeah, I, I start to brew smaller and smaller batches, you know, just so it's a quick dispersion to whoever <laughs> wants them, or, you know, and uh, everyone loves it, and then that's it. You right. Know, I can always make it again because, you know, the technique's always the same. So right. I never have to doubt, you know, if I make a batch of meat and I'm dumping $185 worth of ingredients in there, you know, the fruit's still frozen. I'll still just tear the yeast and <laughs> throw it right in there. And, like, I don't even blink an eye because I know it's going to come out. You know, I've done all the necessary steps, sanitation, everything, you know, in order to, uh, you know, it takes that worrying out of it, you know, right. especially for novice or, you know, even mid-level people, you know, just concerned that something would go wrong, you know. Do you use the same yeast for all your meads? Um, you know, I generally, like, my meads are pretty strong. They're always about 18 to 22 percent, oh, you know, man. but they don't taste like it. I mean, they're, they're somewhere pretty much like the alcohol is, it's almost undetectable. You know, but it hits you fast. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I pretty much always use EC1118. Okay. You know, the high competitive factor, anything else gets in there, it's, you know, that's going to kill it off. I like that strong, you know, my meats have so much flavor, you know, the flavor profile. I mean, it's just punchy in the mouth, but everything's balanced. Mm -hmm. And so... I just like to do basically shots of it, you know, shots right. or, or just sip on it or snifter it. And, you know, two to three ounces, you're like, wow, I'm yeah, really feeling it. You know, I don't need sure. to be drinking necessary glasses and glasses of it. You know, I just want something that's just short and sweet, you know, like it's just, you taste it, you're like, wow. And then two or three minutes later, you're like, whoa, the alcohol's entering my bloodstream and I'm feeling euphoric, you know? <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's what I'm Dancing about. Dancing naked you know? on it's, the it's lawn. It's like, uh, I want the quality in consumption, not the volume. Well, you know, yes. like. Yeah. So do you have a, a favorite of all these beverages you make? Do you like making beer better than mead or? You know, it's just, Like picking it's, a favorite child? Well, no, you know, it's, I like it all. You know, it, it's different in its own way. I mean, mead is, for me, is very quick. Mm -hmm. I sanitize the buckets. I just drop the honey in, add the spring water, and boom, 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 slap the lid on it, and then I'm doing this degassing every day for weeks, you know, by vigorously shaking the bucket. You know, beer, I'm a little more in there, you know, with the decoctions and, and things like that. Um, you know, wine, you know, I've made wine from grapes and, you know, pre-bought juice and, and things like that. So, I mean, they're all different in their own way, you know. It's just the fact of, you know, the art of making something, you know, and the anticipation of being able to share it with my friends and family, you know. Yeah. Like, that's, 
that's it. Like, oh, this is going to be good. I can't wait till it's done. And, you know, I would just buy wine kits, you know, at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. And I would make this wine. And by the end of the year, even though a red wine might only be 10 to 12 months old, it had almost two to three year flavor and, and age on it, you know. And so I would just hand those out for Christmas. Yo, <laughs> so, man. you know, people were always happy, happy to get, get my stuff. You know, I won the Indie International uh, for wine, amateur wine of the year in 2013. So that was like a really big confidence booster in terms of winemaking where I can take kit wine and turn it into something that, that wine aficionados and stuff would, would pay me a so, hundred bucks for, what, you know? What do you attribute that to? Is, are, are you doing something special in your process? Well, you know, picking like... Picking the right stuff to start with? I always, you know, whatever it is I'm trying to do, I try to look in, in ways to sort of streamline it. For example, like whenever I'm making mead and wine, you know, you do your seven to ten day fermentation, then you're transferring it, and then what you're doing is you're eventually you're degassing it mm -hmm. later. I mean, you're adding the sulfite and doing all of that. However, I've skipped all of those steps. So what I'm doing, for example, I'm using the large 7.9 gallon buckets. I'm using spring water. Pick a high quality wine kit. And then as soon as that carboy starts bubbling, I tip that bucket on an angle with the airlock on the high side and I start shaking it. And what's happening is it's dislodging the CO2 as it's being produced. I mean, I just shake it, and then, I mean, the airlock is exploding. Rather you than know? waiting until later yeah, and doing waiting, all the you know, degassing because in. I feel like that CO2 is inhibiting, you know, it's a waste product of its own. So what I used to say to people is, I'm going to get rid of that now, you know, so the yeast is in, like, a good environment. I mean, basically, I equate it to the yeast is sitting in a dirty diaper, mm -hmm. you know, so I would just sit there and shake that thing, 10, 15, 20, 30 times a day. And it would just give off so much carbon dioxide. But then I noticed my fermentations were faster and cleaner. You know, and that's, I want to just provide the proper environment for the yeast to function at its maximum. You know, if it's, I mean, you've seen with beer and wine, there's so much carbon dioxide yeah. in there. I mean, beer, yeah, you don't want to shake up the, the yeast cake or disturb <laughs> right. that. I mean, that's a different beast. But wine and meat, I mean, later people are using drills and wine whips to, to get the gas out. Yeah, I just do I've it done. right in the beginning. Huh. And then the fermentation's done faster, and then so I still let it sit that first seven to ten days. Once I rack it, then I, I let it age. You know, I'll let it age longer in the carboy, that bulk age, right. I think, you know, six, eight, nine months, you know. And I'll add all the cubes and, you know, oak and things like that. And then pretty much the wine is... is kind of dropping clear by then, you know? And then I run it through like a little filter. Right. And it pretty much strips all the gas out of it. And it, it comes out of the filter, you know, the mini jet, and you can drink it and you're like, wow, that is amazing. amazing you and know? I have never heard of that technique and it makes so much sense. Uh, just a, a little aside here, we recently did an experiment for the podcast uh, to find out about uh, the Cezanne stall. You know how Cezanne, uh, the DuPont yeast can kind of stall? Well, one of the, the theories about that yeast is it's derived from a wine yeast. And what we have come to believe is that CO2 is toxic to that yeast. 
And so in that regard, what yeah. you're doing with your wine is right in the same Yeah, line. wine and meat and cider, I always do the same thing. I mean, I just get it going. Keeps the yeast in suspension, drives the gas off, and then it allows it to function better. Because right. on a normal seven to, ten, you know, seven to 10 day, once it's really going and I'm doing that, I mean, it's pretty much done in about 85% degassed at like four to five days. Wow. You know, Amazing. like that's... You know, I, I try to find all different ways to streamline what it is I'm doing. You know, for example, when I'm making beer. Right. You know, I hear people who are using immersion chillers and things like that, you know, where they kind of put it in there. If you're not constantly stirring it, I mean, it takes quite some time. And on like a 10 to 15 gallon pot, like my shoulder started hurting, you know? So I was like, well, why don't I use the mixer rod, you know, that long rod on a drill? While I'm chilling, you know, with an immersion chiller, I can chill 10 gallons of wort probably in like two minutes. Right. And I'm, I feel like I'm aerating it as I'm doing it anyways, and then that's pretty much it. You yeah, know? I ended up buying a pump so I can do the, the recirculated chilling thing, and then I just uh, recently had an opportunity to start playing with one of the Hydra chillers from Jaded. Okay. Those things are awesome, hmm. man. Should you get a chance to use one, give it a try. How does it function? Is it like a... Basically, the Hydra is three coils within each other, and then they all are brought together for a single inlet and outlet. Okay, that and sounds cool. It is not, number one, it's a work of art, so it feels cool when you use it. But you know, so. because I've used some things where, I mean, they have like those plate chillers and, and things like that, where it's like, Back flushing it, and you know, yeah. it's like bits of that. The like, idea behind really... the hydro is it's supposed to be as fast as using a plate or counterflow, okay. but with a lot less maintenance hassle. Okay, yeah, so, that sounds that sounds interesting. I'm, I'm I'm totally sold on mine, and they actually make a little one that fits inside a corny because I use a zymatic, okay, that, like boils in the corny. So, oh wow. So do you uh, do you do the staggered nutrient edition thing? I do the staggered nutrient edition. I know, figured like I figured I, no that, one hurt that you might. Yeah, I mean that to me is is one of those things where I'm using a lot of nutrient though. I mean I was a big fan of the Y yeast wine nutrient, mm -hmm. and so initially, I mean I would add like a big amount, you know, probably one third of the tube, you know. <laughs> but I'm using, you know, on my typical recipe, I mean there's two gallons of honey. You know, a giant can of black currant juice, 2.3 gallons of water, and then up to 20 pounds of frozen fruit. Wow. So, I mean, to make five gallons, yeah. you know, so, I mean, cost-wise, I'm pushing 200 bucks. Yeah. I mean, so I would definitely do that, you know, but, and two packs of, you know, EC1118, and, um, yeah, I felt like it definitely, because there's been times where I didn't add nutrient, and I could taste the difference. Right. You know, I I'm felt sure. like it was just... It was just some intangible, you know, where you're like, it's not as good as it should be, you know? Um, do you have a schedule for when you add the nutrients, or do you just wait and let the, the mead tell you? I add some initially, just so maybe, you know, there's enough trace minerals or whatever it needs, you know? Um, but then once I start to see active fermentation, those first bubbles start going, then I'm, I'm adding, you know? But my fermentation's happen a lot faster because I accelerate the process mm -hmm. by degassing and doing all of that, that, uh, you know, it, it's relatively quick, you right. know, but I'm adding big doses of it, like, for the first three days, wow. you know. I mean, uh, I use, like, a tube <laughs> pretty much of the right. stuff, you know. I felt like I've never tasted anything off about it, and, like, it, you know, it seems yeah, like... Yeah, and if you're putting 200 bucks worth of ingredients in, then the cost of a tube of yeast nutrient is really uh, yeah, negligible. Yeah, I mean, $2, you know, but then you're, you're adding, 
you know, two packages of yeast, you know, and yeah, it's it's definitely high gravity stuff. So, mm-hmm. so I wanted to add enough yeast, but that that yeast is constantly multiplying, especially when you're getting rid of the gas and you're keeping it happy and healthy. It blows up, you know. <laughs> it really blows up. So, so um, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you when you were brewing? While I was brewing, or you know, yeah. I mean, you've ever had any, any, any big disasters, accidents, no. anything like that? Cool. Never. I've never had it's, it's any disasters. Attitude, yeah, no. Man. People are like, you know, well, how many batches have you heard gone bad? You know, I mean, two. I can count two that were complete failures. Mm-hmm. You know, but other than that, of the hundreds of batches, because this it costs money. It takes time and money. You know to make these things, right. plus the end product is everything, you know, like, so that's why I felt like method, you know, like what would help me a lot is that I was always big into cooking, Right. you know, I felt like I met a lot of people who are chemists and engineers, but I felt like their stuff never came out as good as mine, you know, like it was, there was always something where it's like, eh, it's okay, you know, <laughs> or that's pretty gross, you know. We're not tasting the same thing here, buddy, because it's, right. yeah, you know. But, like, I find that you're too technically minded. You're, you're concerned with, with variables you really can't control, you know. I mean, ambient temperature's off by 0.5 degrees, you know. It's yeah, like you're right. worrying about those things. I mean, people actually <laughs> worry about those things. But for me, it's, it's more like I treat it like my mom's cooking. Growing up watching my mom cook, they didn't measure anything. It's just like boom, 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 balance season. Needs a little more of this, a little more of that. Once you get that dialed in, I mean, it's good. I mean, who doesn't like mom's cooking? You know, you know that, it's interesting to hear you it's say that because I came to brewing from a cooking hobby. Also, yeah, you know, that, that's, I, I saw Julia Child when I was twelve years old, and it like changed my life. You know, so it's it's interesting to hear you. say Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, cooking background is definitely. I mean, because that's what you're doing. I mean, you're you're boiling. I mean, you know, too much hops, it's too bitter. You know, I mean, not enough fermentation going. It's too sweet on the end. You know, so it's all about that balance, and, and when you're cooking a meal, if it's too salty, too whatever, you know, then it's not gonna be as good. Right, so is there some like common wisdom that you think is just like totally wrong based on your experience? You know, I don't necessarily think that there's, there's some common wisdom that's just completely wrong. It's, it's how you apply it, you know, like, that's why, like, sometimes, like, I don't mind sharing my recipes. You right. know, I give people the legit actual recipe. They're not me. I know they're not me. So it's going to come out different. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we split a batch, you ferment it at your house, I ferment it at my house, it's going to be different. Temperatures and other things, like, those are all just, uh, those are all just things, like, you, you know, you just can't control, you know. Um, you try to do the best you can. But I feel like, in terms of general homebrewing isms that are out there, right. like, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say that because, like, I just I do what I do. Mm-hmm. I've taken many good ideas from other places, just modified them and, and, and made them my own, incorporated into my own processes. But uh, that's pretty much you it. Haven't, you haven't run across something that somebody told you to do, or you read about that you just decided was totally. Uh, well, I mean, I, I read things all the time, especially, you know, I've never, 
Well, I wasn't too much into the literature of homebrewing, especially when I started, because people were like, oh, read this Charlie Papazian book right. that was written in the 70s about, you know, whatever else, or making beer. Like, I just, I didn't really get into that, you know, so I didn't, wasn't necessarily influenced by that. I just let my own taste guide me, you right. know. Um, because of who my brother was, I had access to <laughs> unlimited question asking um, from reputable sources, so I didn't necessarily have to learn by making mistakes. Right. You know, like I got to skip all of that. You know, I applied all my cooking knowledge and everything I know about how to make something taste good to that with being able to ask questions all the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's pretty much how I got through everything. So have you made, like, like any interesting discoveries? Is there something that, as, as you're making beer or meat or something, you kind of went, whoa, that's really cool? You know, like, I haven't really... Well, the first time, like, I saw, like, a decoction happening, you know, like, that, to me, you know, when I could taste the difference between just a single <laughs> mash, you know, versus decocting, I, you know, the depth of flavor and the body and the... And the increased amount of sugars that are produced it's just you can't compare the two really mm -hmm. i mean that's when i was like wow this is really i'm onto something here with this guy <laughs> because you know like boiling up the grain using that to raise the mash temperature you know like that type of thing really fascinated me you know like i'd be sweating you know like <laughs> you know and like it was like a like a real labor of love you know i used to brew that beer all the time you know all winter long that's one of those beers i could drink any time of the year, but like the labor that goes into it, you know, six to seven hours yeah. to brew five gallons, but I never wasted a drop of that stuff, <laughs> never, you know, and people who received bombers or whatever, they, they were just so appreciative, you know, I had quite a few people try this beer, uh, Dick Lining Google, you know, and wow. he was like, that's pretty fantastic, and you know, I, I've had a lot of people try it, and, and they've all liked it, you know, so... You can't argue with that. Yeah. So uh, you got a favorite ingredient that you love to work with that you, you really look forward to? Favorite ingredient? I mean, like when I'm making meads and stuff, I like to use like things like ginseng, you know? I mean, just a little bit, not necessarily mainstream ingredients. I mean, those are the types of things that I like is like bringing something that's maybe from my culture. But like mm -hmm. even in Wisconsin now, I mean, ginseng is... is you know, they've been growing it for years now, and it uh, has a good reputation around the world, you know? Like, uh, parents told this funny story. They were visiting China, you know? Like, ethnically, we're Korean, but they were visiting China, and uh, they were in this very small rural village in China, and this lady had a, a big basket of ginseng roots, and she had this cardboard sign, and what did it say? Wisconsin ginseng. Oh, no! <laughs> it, we knew it wasn't Wisconsin ginseng, but, like, that's... It's generally, it's one of those top-ranked... You know, I guess, evidently, like, a Korean guy came to, like, Wausau area <laughs> in, like, the early 80s or something like that, and, you know, Korea's pretty much on the same latitude um, as uh, Wisconsin, and I guess he... Supposedly, this is the story, like, he just picked up some of the dirt and tasted it, and he's like, this is good for growing ginseng. Whoa. And then that's what happened, you know? <laughs> that is really cool, yep, man. Yep, yep. That's really hard so, to even imagine. So uh, is there something that you wish more people would, like, drink or explore and get into? You know, I wish that people would 
I guess not experiment so much, really. You know, I mean, like when I look at like the craft beer market, I think people are just doing things to just be weird or, you know, where it's like it's, it's gone too far, you know, like especially in the cooking trends, like in the restaurants, like there was a point where people were just making the craziest combinations of this, this and that, just trying to be different. You know, and I don't think that that, uh, I'm a big fan of people just getting back to the classic styles, but doing it well. You mean beer-flavored beer? Yeah, beer-flavored beer, you know, like that's why, you know, I've won plenty of gold medals, and, and me and John, we actually won a gold medal for our, you know, Hefeweizen, but like, I want to win contests bringing back those classic styles, you know, where right. it just tastes so good, where it's like, hey, you can't deny it, you know, yes, it's not something, you know, Strong, or it's you know, not a but clam it's just chowder yeah. saison. exactly. But like, I just want I want people to get back to the classic styles, right. you know, like because there are just some amazing, like a properly made ESB or even like a good mild, you know, like when done right, those are the best beers, you know, yeah. they are, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I grew and I go around and around about this all the time because uh, I feel like there are too many people just putting strange stuff into beer for the sake of putting strange yeah, stuff just into to be beer. weird and then you know the end product it's like wow i mean and he calls me a boring old man so. you know it's almost like i mean when you go to look at craft beer in like a store it's, it's overwhelming for me now right. like i can't even go down i mean there's so many bottles of all this different stuff and it's like you know, it's almost like buying cheese for me. Like, I've never been that adventurous in buying cheese. So when I see something with, like, a purple rind or some crazy, like, I'm not that type of guy who's going to just say, oh, I'm going to buy this and try it. <laughs> you know, like, I, it has to be verified good. Right. Otherwise, there's just too much disappointment, you know, that, that happens that, uh, you know, like, I just don't really get out there. I, you know, I see that stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I'm sure some of it's delicious, but I'd rather just make my own. Right. You know, like. Right. So do you have any, like, favorite flavors? You know, I like, I like wheat flavor. I like Interesting. wheat. <laughs> yeah, I like wheat flavor, like a wheaty, rich, a little bit sweet, kind of chewy. I mean, that is one of my favorite flavors, you know, just that sort of wheat, you know. But, like, when... What I find is like there's so many wheat beers out there that kind of have that sour twang to it, you know. It's like I don't really like that. Yeah, you know, right. like I want half of ice and it needs to be like banana bread. <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's what I want. I mean, that is one of my favorite favorite flavors, you know. Um, I also like the dark mixed berry type of thing, you know. Right. A lot of black currant, blackberry, blueberry, raspberry type of thing, oh, you nice. know, just that jammy yeah. fruit flavor, you know. So any, any general brewing thoughts, if there's some overall piece of advice you could give to, to other brewers? Well, I mean, especially for like the, the, the new brewers, you know, like stick to something that you like and make it over and over till you would crack your own wallet and pay money for it. Then you know, it. you know, I mean, I've tasted so many things from so many different people. If I would be willing to crack my wallet to pay someone for it, then it's good. Right. Then you can do anything, you know? Right. One, once you get to that level where it's like, yeah, I would, I would buy that. <laughs> so <laughs> like, then, it's like practice, practice, practice. Yeah, over and over. You know, because you, you brew a different beer the next time, you have nothing to gauge it on. Mm -hmm. You know, and people just, 
And what you hear is the first batch always turns out good, especially for, for new home brewers. And then the second or third one, they're like, oh, it didn't turn out. You know, they start already cutting corners, you know, so you can't do that. You know, it's just develop your method. Once you have that down, it's smooth sailing. Right. It's smooth sailing because you've taken care of your sanitation and, and all the little things, which are big things, you know. I mean, those are the most important things. And uh, once that method is firmly ingrained, then, you know, if your friend's like, hey, I want to try brewing this beer, it's like, oh, no problem. It's going to be awesome. Let's right. do it, you know. And, and that's it. That's my biggest thing, you know. So uh, last question. What non-beer thing are you, like, fascinated with or obsessed by? If you're not thinking about beer, what's, what's your life about? Well, what I'm fascinated by... Um, I think is life beyond <laughs> our solar system. Oh, you know, cool. like I meet a lot of people who are like, oh, we're the only ones. It's like, wow, really? You know, <laughs> like there has to be, I would almost wish that, you know, the mothership would come <laughs> and you can start by blowing up the Vatican and then Mecca and all those other places. Like yes, Day. you know, just get rid of all those places and, you know, like <laughs> let people be cool again, you know? Like that's... But I think, like, uh, yeah, that, you know, I watch a lot of those shows on string theory and quantum physics and, you know, where science is going to take us next. Like, that is something I'm into. You know? Cool, man. Well, I can, I can see that from the way you talk about your brewing, too. You know, it's like, uh, you, you have a, it seems like you really think things through, but then go with your intuition and your gut. I did a lot of thinking in the beginning, you know? And now I don't think so much. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, I just do it, you right. know, when it just becomes habit. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Mino, so much. Uh, we've been sitting here talking to Mino Choi about his brewing, winemaking, mead making. Uh, this guy does it all. And uh, thanks so much, buddy. I thanks totally for having me, man. It was great hey, to meet you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. So there is Mino Choi talking about uh, his brewing, winemaking, cider making, mead making, and his opinions about what people should be brewing. Well, I just want to say two things uh, about uh, Mino's uh, philosophies, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. and accomplishments. Uh, first is, if I scored a 50 on basically my first competition ever, uh, I don't think I would ever be able to live down the amount of ego inflation that I'd be dealing with. And two, I feel conflicted about uh, about his uh, his thoughts because on the one hand he he and I share sort of the same sort of culinary thought background about how beers are designed, mm -hmm. but then he has to go ruin it by being a pedantic piece of poo about <laughs> ab about saying things like mm, beer flavored beer type beer. <sighs> yeah, well, uh, all I can say is right on, Mino, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is funny. Mino is almost perfectly in between you and I on philosophies. Yeah, that's true. That's, I kept thinking that all the th all the way through the interview. It's like you know, little bits of you on one side, little bits of me on the other. Side. It's like like the devil and angel on each shoulder kind of thing. Uh, hopefully, he's prettier than bits of you and me mixed together. So there you go. Yeah, really. Okay, so there's uh, there's Mino Choi, his uh, philosophy and advice about uh, about brewing. And, and you know, before we get out of here, one of the other things I really want to mention I thought was extremely interesting was the way that Mino shakes the crap out of his fermenters of uh, wine and mead 
to basically get a very high gravity beverage done in a few days. Yeah, very aggressive um, degassing. Yeah, you know, and in a way, this goes back to what we were talking about with the Cezanne. You know, that was the first thing that I thought of, as I mentioned in the interview, that uh, the DuPont Cezanne yeast is rumored to have come from a wine yeast, and we've found that uh, getting it away from CO2 can really help. So maybe that has some bearing on his winemaking, too. Well, I'm beginning to really think that uh, with fermentation, CO2 is oftentimes the enemy, and open fermentation is often the answer, unless you're in the wine world, in which case aggressive degassing is the answer. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Well, hey, before we we get out of here, I do want to remind everybody that Mino is part of our relatively unknown All-Stars series. You know, just like uh, some of the other people that we feature on here, these are homebrewers that you would not necessarily have heard of unless you happen to live around them, in which case you probably know them very well. Uh, if you have somebody that you think would be perfect for this segment, somebody who can really provide some interesting detail, some interesting color, or you know, even just some interesting thoughts about beer, uh, please let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and nominate your favorite unknown all-star. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about something other than beer. All right, here we go. It's time It's time to go visit the other side of life. You know, that side of life that doesn't have anything to do with beer. I know. I know, gentle listener. It seems hard to believe that there's something other than beer. But this week, Mr. Danny Kahn has something other than beer. What is it, buddy? You know, there was a, a new TV series that just started running on uh, our public broadcasting station here called uh, The Kitchen Wisdom of Cecilia Chang. Uh, I'm, I'm a cooking show freak. I guess I've mentioned several times before that I actually got into brewing because when I was young, I discovered Julia Child on TV and became really, really into cooking and brewing was kind of a, a logical extension of that. So I tend to watch all the new cooking shows that I can that show up on TV. This one sounded interesting because Cecilia Chang has been described as the Julia Child of Chinese food and the woman who really introduced Chinese food to the U.S. Uh, so in a couple of the opening episodes of the show, they describe her background. Uh, this woman, I should mention, is like in her mid-90s now. Uh, back in uh, World War II days in the 1940s, she and one of her sisters actually walked a thousand miles from their home to escape the Japanese occupation and, uh, and get to free China where they could, they could be safe. Eventually emigrated to the United States, started probably about the first Chinese restaurant in the United States called the Mandarin, taught people like uh, Julia Child and Alice Waters about Chinese food. And the show itself is a great mixture of her talking about her background and then cooking in the kitchens of some really amazing chefs, kind of showing them how to do this stuff. And, you know, the, the whole ambience of the show, the, the way it's presented, her tips, it's just, it's wonderful. If you're a cooking freak, you love watching TV cooking shows, this is one that you absolutely have to see. Uh, if you're on Facebook, there's a page there for the Kitchen Wisdom of Cecilia Chang. Uh just go out, go find it, read her books, watch the shows. I think that you're going to love her. I, I was instantly taken in. 
Well, and that, and that sounds really cool. I mean, I, I think uh, for a lot of people, you know, a lot of Asian Asian cuisines, Chinese cuisines, you know, uh, Japanese, all the various regions inside these countries. I mean, geez, China's got like, I don't know, like 30 different cuisines in it, just from major yeah. regional specialties. I think there's a lot of room for our, for our culture to really kind of learn and pick up some uh, really interesting new flavors. And yeah, I, I, I watched one of the episodes uh, that you had posted up and yeah, she's a bit of a firecracker for, for a little lady. Oh man, I know you see her and you go, this woman is 95 years old, but then you hear the story of how she and her sister walked a thousand miles and what they had to put up with on the trip and stuff. And you go, okay, this woman has, you know, has some, some guts to her, you know, she, she knows what it's all about. So anyway, go. go find it. All right. And we'll include a link. Now, let's get on to our quick tip of the week, and uh, we're going to cheat a little bit here. We're going to come back to something that we just talked about in the brewery. So here's my quick tip. Don't throw away your HLT water. Keep some extract on hand or keep some honey on hand, and use that leftover HLT water to go make yourself a secondary beverage. After all, you spent all day making yourself one beer. Why don't you go make yourself something else when it only takes you like an additional 15 minutes? So yeah. Keep your HLT water uh, topped up. I mean, it's always a good idea to have a lot of hot water on hand for cleaning anyway. And now if you have that extra hot water, instead of letting it go to waste or, I don't know, go water your plants with it. Boring. (laughs) Why don't you go make a beer or mead? Yeah. And particularly if you're going to make something with an extract like I did with the, uh, the wild beer, that's super easy. Just mix it up. Go away. It's ready to go. And honey, uh, honey mead is like even more stupidly easy. So, uh, by all means, keep some extra HLT water on hand for your brew day. Keep some extra ingredients on hand. Score two beers for the price of one brew day. There you go, man. Okay, the question of the week this week is, what do you think of my homebrew myths? Do you agree with them? Do you disagree? Why or why not? You got any of your own that you want to talk about? Shoot us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and tell us about what you think are homebrew myths. And hey, don't forget, we're getting ready to start another round of experimentation. We need experimenters. If you want to come join the Igors, get cool benefits, snazzy pins, maybe some free ingredients, uh, just drop us a line at igor at experimentalbrew.com because hey, we need to experiment. That's right. And when I was in uh, Milwaukee, I talked to a lot of people who said they were going to become Igors and get in on the experiments. And now's your chance, guys. Sign up. Get in on it. We have cool, snazzy little Igor pins for all of you who, uh, who participate. So, Drew, how about a quick recap? All right. Let's see. What did we do? We talked about two really cool online competitions that are there, Brew United and SJ Poor. Uh, we talked in the beer, beer life, we talked about, you know, laws and why you actually still need to fight for your rights as a home brewer and how to do it. We also talked about Scott Janice's great article about DMS and what we think and why you should experiment and see whether or not you can create DMS. Uh, because after all, some people seem to be having problems and some people say, hey, no, it's still a thing. Uh, we went through Denny's myths. Uh, the only thing more mythological is whether or not Denny has ever been clean shaven in his entire life. Uh. I can tell you that the answer is yes for three months, and people beg me to grow the beard back. Well, there you go. All right. And then from uh, The Mist, we moved on. We talked to our unknown all-star, Mino Choi, who blew everybody's mind with all of his various things, including being a blend of Denny and I and scoring 50s on beers, which is just unfair. Uh, and we also tackled uh, what we've been doing in our breweries. 
Uh, Denny talked about the the Chinese version of Julia Child, and we gave you a little bit of a quick tip and a cheat. And now we're on our way. It's time for another episode to come to an end. That's right. So thanks a lot for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures, experiments, and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. We're on places all over the internet. Uh, I'm on most brewing forums out there, and Drew handles Reddit, so you can find us just about everywhere. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at Experimental Brew, and he's Drew at Experimental Brew. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. We'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.